0: If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn today to Colossians 2, Colossians two sixteen to 23. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father God, uh, I thank you for your inspired, inerrant word. I ask, Father, that you would talk to us through your word. We want a fresh word from you. Lord, if I say things that are incorrect, let us have wisdom to ignore that. Because we want to hear from you, your spirit, your word. We want to hear truth. Father, guide us in all truth. But not just to hear, but to live it out. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Probably many of us know Charles Schultz. Maybe we've read the cartoon strip, Peanuts. In one particular one, Lucy said, I wish I were in charge. I would change the whole world. Charlie wasn't very impressed and said, well, that's a pretty big task. What would you do first? Wrong question. She pointed out Charlie and said, I'd change you. And that's the way it often is with legalists. Legalists are individuals who add to Scripture, who go beyond Scripture, who are often quite judgmental. And rather than looking internally at what God wants to do in transforming us, legalists tend to look externally at others and try to apply what they have added to Scripture into our lives. In the Bible, there were two groups that particularly caught the ire of Jesus. They were the scribes, their professional pastors, and the Pharisees, they're actually lay leaders who had a lot of authority, and Jesus condemned both of them because they constantly wanted to add to Scripture and apply what they added to the lives of others in a judgmental way. Let me just read a little from Matthew 23. I'll read verses 27 and 8. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I don't mean to be cheeky this morning. But I want to give us 10 characteristics that I observe when I or others are legalistic or when churches are legalistic. The first is this. Legalists tend to be angry. They're angry at the world. They're angry at churches. They're angry at others. They're very judgmental. They point the finger. They tend to be angry people always deciding that others are falling short of their standards. Second, legalists tend to be without joy. Maybe a sign that would be appropriate outside a church that is legalistic is something like this, abandon hope all ye who enter. They don't believe that the joy of the Lord is our strength. They don't believe enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. They don't believe rejoice today. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. There ought to be joy in the lives of God's people. Third, they believe something like this. God loves you if, and then they fill in the blank. But actually, Scripture says God loves you. In fact, in a most remarkable statement in John three sixteen, it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And the word used for world is cosmos, which is not a positive word. Not in John's vocabulary. We have five books that he penned the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. Look at how he uses the word cosmos. It's not for believer, it's predominantly for unbeliever. It's not for those who are walking in righteousness, but those who are walking in unrighteousness. It's not for individuals who are doing the will of God, but those who often oppose the will of God. And yet the Bible says that God loved those in the cosmos, those in the world. And so when we accurately think of God, we don't think God loves me if. What we ought to think is God loves me. And therefore, he won't leave me in the state that I'm in. He wants me if I'm an unbeliever to pass into belief. He wants me if I'm a believer to take the next step in my relationship with Jesus Christ. God loves us. But he doesn't want to leave us in the state that we came in this morning. Fourth, legalists tend to compare themselves to others. It's kind of an us versus them mentality. I serve more than him. I'm a better parent than her. Why do they always walk in late? Don't they have an alarm clock? Don't they have priorities? And the idea kind of is God must grade on the curve. So if they get a D, I'm going to get a C because of their D. But God never grades on the curve. How you behave has no bearing on how God evaluates how I behave and vice versa. Fifth, we have a word in our language that probably makes no sense. It's the word fundamentalist. Because a fundamentalist doesn't believe in fun, especially not in church. We're not fundamentalists. We're evangelicals. And what makes us evangelicals is that we believe in the authority of Scripture, a Trinitarian God, that salvation is only by faith in Jesus Christ alone. A fundamentalist, a word that many perhaps used at one time, now refers to those who are particularly angry at the rest of the church. That would not, should not be us. Sixth, legalists often see a dichotomy, a dichotomy between being right and being kind. They would use the word or in between. I think we ought to use the word and. God calls us to be right and To be kind. It's not either or. It's both and in our lives. Seventh. Many legalists are very puffed up. With biblical knowledge. And proud of it. What ought to happen. Is the more you and I know the scriptures. The more we ought to be broken. Over how far short we fall. Before God's glory. Eight legalists tend to confuse biblical absolutes and personal preferences. Where the Bible says do, we ought to do. Where the Bible says don't, we ought not to do. When the Bible says believe, we ought to believe. But then there's an entire category in which the Bible doesn't speak. And there aren't tangential verses that apply in those areas We ought to allow God's spirit to speak to our heart, but what he says to our heart might be different than what he says to somebody else. If you don't believe that's possible, read the most doctrinal book in the Bible, Romans, in chapters 14 and 15, after giving us 11 chapters of doctrine. In chapters 14 and 15, it goes on to say that God speaks to different people in different ways, not talking about scripture. Scripture is absolute. We do, we don't, we believe as Scripture teaches. But in those areas in which Scripture doesn't teach, he may very well, by his Spirit, talk to one person in one way and another person in another way, never contradicting Scripture, but guiding us as we live out our lives for his glory. Nine, legalists tend to see things always as black and white, but not everything is black and white. It really isn't. There's a lot more gray in our lives than we want to admit. Legalists like boxes. Scripture has some boxes and a lot of liberty. And we live for God's glory in the boxes and in the liberty that God grants. And ten, if one is a legalist, you're probably annoyed at my first nine. It's just the truth. It's just the truth. Today's text is about legalism. It's also about mysticism. That is trying to find secret meanings in scripture. And asceticism. Somehow trying to earn grace. But grace by definition is what we do not deserve. It's unmerited favor. So we have legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. Let me pick up and read from Colossians two, sixteen to 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, And worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions. Puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. And not holding fast to the head. That is Christ. What ought to be central in our life. We've already been told Christ is Christ. From whom the whole body nourished and knit together. Through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Now he's going to actually quote the Judaizers, sincere Jews who want to bring the church back, saying Jesus is okay, but you need the Levitical laws in order to be saved. This is one of the two groups that have infiltrated the church, false teachers. And what do they say? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Don't believe in liberty. That's what they say referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. As you and I begin in verse 16, we read the Greek word un, the English word therefore. Therefore. You probably heard someone say, and it's actually a really wise statement. When you see the word therefore, ask why it is therefore. What's its purpose? It actually ties verse 16 with what preceded verse 15. What is in verse 15? That Jesus made a spectacle of the demonic world, of Satan. He conquered them. Therefore, verse 16. Don't imitate them. How do we imitate them? By becoming legalists. By becoming spiritists. By becoming ascetics. Legalism adding to the scriptures repels people away from God. Don't do that. That's Paul's point. That's why he says therefore. That's why he ties verse 15 in with verse 16. Don't act like the Fallen world, the demonic world. God wants better of us. Therefore, act like a Christ follower. By the way, it is never legalism to stand firm on the word of God. The morals and ethics of our world, most of the time, are not the morals and ethics of Scripture. So where God says, do we do, where God says, don't we don't, when God says, believe we believe with charity, with grace, but we stand firm on scripture. But we don't do so with anger, judgmentalism, holier than thou type attitudes. Now in verses 16 and 17, Paul goes back to what is being taught by these Judaizers, these false teachers, sincere but false teachers who have infiltrated the church, who have essentially said, Jesus is pretty good, but if you want to be saved, you got to go back to the Levitical laws. Remember that Jesus fulfilled them for you. Matthew 5, 17 to 20, Jesus came, the first one, the only one who has kept all 613 Levitical laws, and when he did so, he fulfilled them, and he said, we're no longer under the minutiae. Why? Because the purpose of the Levitical law has been fulfilled. What's the purpose of the Levitical law? Galatians and Romans both tell us it was given to teach us that we are lawbreakers. That we cannot save ourselves. That we cannot perform at a level in which we can come into the presence of a holy God. That we need a savior. And so having already learned that lesson from the Levitical law... Jesus fulfilled it for us, and we are now free to obey the rest of Scripture and to enjoy liberty in areas in which Scripture doesn't speak. You remember Acts chapter 10. This is Peter, a legalistic Christian, who's learning this lesson. He's hungry. He's up on his rooftop. Someone is making him lunch or dinner. He's ready to eat. And he has a vision, God gives him a vision and lowers a sheet and on that sheet are all sorts of foods that he's not allowed to eat. It's unkosher. They're the very things that the Levitical law says you cannot eat if you're a Jew. And God says in the vision, take and eat. And you remember what Peter says, by no means. And God responds, do not call unclean that which I have called clean. And from that vision, Peter learns two things. First, God had sent him to a Gentile named Cornelius. Uh, Peter wants nothing to do with it. But God said, don't call unclean what I have called clean. So Peter learns that the gospel is not only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. And second, he learns that he is no longer, you are no longer, we are no longer under the dietary laws, the Levitical laws, those 613 laws, are the very parts of the books of Moses in the beginning of the Bible. That's what Paul refers to in verse 16 when he talks about the food and the drink. He's talking about the dietary laws. Now this is the message that Paul is really giving. If as a Christ follower, as an act of worship, never as a means of trying to gain grace, but as an act of worship, You desire to still follow the dietary laws? Go for it, doesn't matter. But don't ever think you're earning God's grace and never foist that on anyone else. So I have a Jewish friend who's also a believer in Christ who sometimes follows the dietary laws, sometimes he doesn't. It's very interesting to watch. I would never say to him, Why are you following that dietary law? Because for him, it's tradition. It's actually more than his faith. It's his culture. He's got that freedom. But he doesn't have the freedom to tell his wife or his grandchildren or children or me to follow the dietary laws because we're not under the dietary laws. Paul makes the same statement about festivals in verses 16 and 17. He's talking about Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Rosh Hashanah. He's talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. He's talking about all the major feasts and the minor feasts. Is it wrong for a Christ follower, Jew or Gentile, to celebrate these feasts? No, it's not wrong at all. But we can't do it as a means of grace. It has to be as an act of worship. And it's never foisted On others. What we eat and the way we celebrate festivals, as long as we don't do things that violate Scripture, is a matter of conscience. Follow your conscience, don't play Holy Spirit in the life of someone else. So I want to illustrate this in the 21st century Halloween. Yesterday I ran into Tina Moberg. And I told her at a grad party, she is part of my sermon today. It made her very happy. <laughs> but when Betty Ann and I candidated, we went out to eat with Dr. Ken Moberg and Tina Moberg, and she asked us about Halloween. And I thought, you gotta be kidding me, man. That's divisive. I don't wanna answer. It's a divisive issue. I wanna tell you how the Mobergs celebrate Halloween. They could try and appeal to their conservative chops and to, to win the approval of others. They don't. They pull their grill out to the middle of their driveway and they have chips and they have cokes. And as the neighborhood goes by their house, they invite them for a hot dog chips and coke. They have turned Halloween into a holiday to get to know their neighbors. That's brilliant. When I grow up, I want to be like Canantina. Tina. That's brilliant. They're not concerned of what you think or what I think. They're concerned about what God thinks and how to utilize what God thinks they might do to win their neighbors. I think of holiday mascots. I don't care if you like the bunny or you like the fairy. It makes no difference to me. If you like them, celebrate them. If you don't, don't play play Holy Spirit in anyone else's life. It's a secondary issue. Sabbath rules. Oh my. Our Sabbath is Sunday, and there are lots of Sabbath rules in certain places. In certain churches, you can't get up here without a jacket and tire if you're a woman. Your skirt has to be four fingers below the knee. Who thinks of this stuff? I mean, who thinks of this stuff? Where does it come from? I own exactly one jacket nowadays. Whether I marry you or bury you, it's the same color. It's all I got. It's all I got. One jacket. I used to have a lot of them. I'm down to one. Someday I'll be down to none. I mean, who cares? if you're wearing a jacket or tie or you're not. I doubt the Lord cares. Or you gotta be clean shaven because Jesus didn't have a beard. Who thinks of this stuff? In the church I pastored in in Texas, we had a family that because we had a Christmas tree didn't come during December. And I had to choose legalistic family or Christmas tree. I missed them for the whole month. Why? separate over such a silly thing. It just doesn't make sense. Or what happens if a five-year-old goes skipping through the halls? Sunday morning at church, I doubt the Holy Spirit is wringing his hands. (laughs) Why would we not rejoice with a little five-year-old who's skipping along through the hall? And why would we say, don't run in church just get out of the way. <laughs> the 5-year-old's a bowling ball. You're going to lose. Get out of the way. It's just not that big. A deal. Or how about what version of the Bible? This is a personal pet peeve of mine. I just I just think we're smarter than this. We're better than this. I've been trained under some of the best world-class scholars anywhere. That's not to say that I belong there. I just have had that privilege. None of them who can read Hebrew and Greek fluently and understand transmission of the Bible, none of them have argued to my knowledge of which version of the Bible. But we get this website or two that's angry, that purports to know all sorts of things, and all of a sudden we We speak poorly of this version or we speak poorly of that version. And we don't know Hebrew. We don't know Greek. We don't even know if the person we're reading knows Hebrew or Greek. And yet we become angry and divisive over this. At Highland, we all teach and preach from the ESV. Not because we think it's the best version. Some do, some don't. We do it for unity. Unless you're Dave Mahler. And then he preaches from the NIV. If you get to be an octogenarian, you don't ask questions. He gets to preach from whatever version he wants. He gets up here and he says the same thing every time. They dusted me off. Well, I love it when we dust Dave off. And if he wants the NIV, you know what? I can live with the NIV. It's just not that big a deal. I think God hates legalism. In fact, that's the word therefore in verse 16, contrasting what we ought to be to what the demonic world is. Because the demonic world loves legalism because it pushes people on tertiary or worse issues and it drives people away from the truth. Three times in the text, Christ, the head, Christ, Three times we're told what the matter that really matters is. It's Christ. It's not some of these secondary issues. I think of alcohol. That's a very big divisive issue in the church. Proverbs 20 verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Beer is a brawler. Those who are led astray are unwise. It actually doesn't say those who drink. It says those who are led astray, those who get buzzed, those who get drunk, they're unwise. Now some struggle with addictions. My heart goes out to you. I, I know that's a really serious struggle. One of the reasons Betty Ann and I don't drink is because we've counseled enough people who have fallen into unwise territory that we just don't want to have that in our lives. But actually, we go beyond Scripture. Scripture doesn't say you can't drink. It says you can't abuse drink. That's what Scripture says. And so we ought not go beyond. We, we can have personal convictions, but we can't foist them on others. Sometimes we do this with schooling. I'm about to misuse three passages of Scripture going to warn you right up front. I'm going to misuse three passages of scripture. You got to homeschool because Deuteronomy 6 and 7 says that while the children are at home or lie down while they're awake or whether they're out, you've got to teach them the word of God. So you got to homeschool. You got a Christian school because Romans 12, 1 and 2 says you've got to teach a Christian worldview and you can only do that in a Christian school. You got a public school because Matthew 5, 11, 12, and 13 says you got to be salt and light. Actually, not one of those passages is about schooling. Not one. Be convinced in your mind. Allow God to give you wisdom for your child, your grandchild. But don't play Holy Spirit in the life of Of someone else that goes beyond what Scripture says therefore don't be like verse 15 be like what God calls us to attach to Christ attached to the head attach to Christ major on what really matters well the text is not just about legalism it's also about mysticism Let me read verses 18 and 19 again. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head, Christ, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God mysticism believes that there are all sorts of hidden meanings in scripture. It's looking for numbers, it's counting letters, it's looking for the deeper meanings, it's wanting a vision, it wants to give a word from God to you because God told me what you ought to do. All of that is mysticism. And the text says, attach yourself to Christ, attach yourself to the head which is Christ, attach yourself to Christ. In the last 10 years, mysticism has become a big part in the evangelical world where books are written for the, the deeper meanings of counting and numbers and numerology and hidden meanings. We are in dangerous territory. For millennium, several, the church has believed in the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture. Scripture if it took the 21st century for us to figure out all of these hidden meanings, then I don't think the meaning is hidden. I think we created it. The church has always believed in the perspicuity of Scripture. Teach it to children. That's what Deuteronomy 6 and 7 is actually about. It's not about school. It's about how we raise children. It's clear enough for children so that we have soon to be third graders being given a Bible today to find their way through Scripture, perspicuity, clarity. The Bible is inexhaustible. We would all agree we will never understand all of it, even corporately, until we're called home to glory. But we don't need to look for hidden meanings. We need to study and allow Scripture to speak to us As it is written. Paul goes on to say it's not just hidden meetings he's concerned with, it's the worship of angels, verse 18. This is a little less in the church today. Maybe a decade ago, it was a big deal. People having pictures and statues and necklaces of angels. And if you do, I don't care, it doesn't bother me. As long as you know it's an angel, a ministering spirit. That's what Hebrews 1.14 to 2.4 says. That God in his graciousness sends his angels, as ministering spirits. To minister to us in our time of need. That's a biblical thing. But to worship an angel, to pray to an angel. To think that an angel can intervene spiritually on our behalf. That is not biblical. You remember in John 19.10. John had a vision. He's in heaven, and the vision is so unbelievable. He falls before an angel to worship, and the angel says, get up. I'm a created being just like you. And then remember what the angel says, worship God. Don't worship the angel. Don't worship Mary. Don't worship an icon. Don't worship an idol. Don't worship a so-called saint. And by the way, if you know Jesus, you're a saint. You don't have to die to become one. You worship God. That's clear in Scripture. Isn't that part of the Decalogue? The first two commandments in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 have no other God beside me. Do not worship any other graven image. Only worship God. Only worship God. Mysticism has a word. For you. Mysticism takes your eyes off of God. Mysticism is looking for hidden meanings. We believe in the perspicuity, the clarity of Scripture. That's what God is calling us to. Finally, he mentions asceticism. This is tricky because part of what ascetics do, that is, they Buffet their body for the kingdom is right. And part of what ascetics do is very wrong. The right part is that we ought to be into spiritual disciplines. Whether fasting or memorizing scripture or giving or serving. Or helping the poor or caring for the least of these. Or being part of a worship service. That's all right. What's wrong is if we think we're earning grace. We think we are somehow... Earning grace, but grace is never earned. It's unmerited favor. It's what God gives us. And so he addresses asceticism in verses 20 to 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, you died to the things of the demonic world. Why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit in regulations? Like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The church has a long history of trying to earn grace. I think of Dr. Martin Luther before he came to Christ. He had a whip, a flagellum. and he would beat himself in order to somehow atone for his own sins. In Germany, on a stone floor, he would sleep without a blanket in order to somehow atone, pay for his sin. And he learned better. I think of Simeon, the stylite from Aleppo, Syria, For 37 years, he lived on top of a stone in order not to be contaminated by people like us. It's right to isolate, to love the Lord and know him, or to fast, but it's never right to do things to somehow earn grace, because grace cannot be earned. Perhaps the most prevalent in the third world is poverty. Now, I've never known a poor person who wants to be poor, but I have known a few poor people who don't want to be poor. They want to be rich, but while they're poor, they're going to wear it as a badge of honor. This is the truth. If you're poor or you're filthy rich or somewhere in between, you are a steward, not an owner. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and as stewards, we give God the first fruits, and what's left we use to serve and glorify God. That's the truth. We can build spiritual disciplines in our lives. We ought to. Paul talks about that. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, he says this. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete, be a spiritual athlete. Exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. I discipline my body spiritually. And keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others. I myself should be disqualified. Let me summarize the passage. Where God says do you do. Where God says don't. We don't. Where God says believe. We believe. Where God doesn't speak. And there's not a tangential uh, 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 passage to apply We have Romans 14 and 15 and says, that God may speak to your heart. Be convinced in your heart, but don't play Holy Spirit in someone else's life. Believe in the perspicuity, the clarity of Scripture. It's about Christ, it's about the head, Christ, it's about Christ. Live for Christ. Don't believe in all of these mysteries. Scripture is clear the perspicuity. And be a spiritual athlete. Buffet your body, but not to earn grace. But as an act of worship, put on the spiritual disciplines. To please Christ. Our lives are to be lived for Christ. Let's pray. Father God, uh, always easier to talk about these things than to live it out. But Lord, we want to honor you. We want to honor your word. So help us to do so. And if your word was rightly divided, help us to apply it. If not, help us to ignore what wasn't rightly divided, that we may be changed by truth. For your glory, in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.